Hello, and welcome to the Great War Aircast, a mini-series on the Air War from 1914 to 1916. This is part one of three, the infancy of air power. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, I'm going to be away for most of the summer and won't be around to post full-length episodes. In the interim, I have prepared a series of mini-episodes to help bridge the gap until I'm able to return full-time. This is a temporary solution only. Don't fret, the show is going nowhere, but I figured this would be a good way to go back and plug in some of the holes I missed during our main narrative. As you probably guessed from the title, this is the first episode of a miniseries covering the air war from 1914 to 1916. There are three parts in total. Part 1 will cover the early days of military aviation. Part 2 will focus on the evolution of air power from 1914 to 1915. And in Part 3, we'll end off looking at the role of air power during these summer offensives of 1916. Why am I ending the series in 1916, you ask? Well, because once I'm able to get back to this full-time, we'll be jumping right into 1917. And it was in 1917 when air power truly came into its own. So by the time we get there, we'll have a good grasp of how air power evolved to that point. As a bit of forewarning, the Great War Aircast is not an all-encompassing view of the air war. It is designed as a broad overview, covering the key events and developments only. We won't be getting into the technical aspects of the aircraft, or debating which ace deserves the most laurels. That being said, however, I'm sure there is enough information packed into these three episodes to please both the curious and the diehard. So without further delay, let's get started. Popular misconception dates the birth of military air power to 1914. But in order to better understand the role of air power in the Great War, we need to begin our story two decades earlier. In May 1899, an extraordinary conference opened up at The Hague. The idea behind the conference was to curtail the rapid expansion of armaments and to lay out the ground rules for the future conduct of war. Instigated by the Russians, the conference began on May the 18th, Tsar Nicholas's birthday, and continued until the end of July. Three treaties and three declarations were signed, specifying the treatment of POWs, non-combatants, and the like. Of these six articles produced, Declaration 4 is of particular interest. Declaration 4 concerned aerial warfare, in which the great powers agreed to a five-year ban on the launching of projectiles and explosives from balloons. The declaration was ratified by all the major powers, the United States and Great Britain being the exceptions. At the time of the Hague Conference, every major army in Europe were invested in military aeronautics. The French were the forerunners, having established the first permanent balloon school in 1874. By the turn of the century, the armies of Russia, Germany, and Italy had full-time balloon sections, which were used extensively for observation. A major step in the evolution of air power was taken in 1884, 
when a French inventor named Charles Renard built the first dirigible airship. Unlike balloons, which are carried by the wind, Renard's dirigible was powered by an electric motor and propeller. Renard flew a four-mile circuit in 23 minutes during his trial run, widely considered to be the first fully controlled free flight. To prove it was no stroke of luck, Renard repeated the feat several times over the coming months. The 52-meter-long airship returned to its mooring each time without incident. After working himself to an early grave, Renard's prototype then passed to Hungarian engineer David Schwartz, who in 1890 built a larger and more powerful airship. Schwartz was aided by two things unavailable to Renard, aluminum and the internal combustion engine. Schwartz met with greater success than his predecessor. While Renard's ship was air-filled, Schwartz's was a rigid design, in which the balloon, or envelope, was supported by an aluminum frame. Although the rigid design showed great potential, Schwartz had difficulty finding a buyer. Both Austrian and Russian governments had turned down offers to invest in the prototype. But then, in January 1897, Schwartz received a telegram from Berlin, informing him of the German government's desire to finance his project. Tragically, Schwartz would not live to see his machine go to trial. When he heard the good news, David Schwartz, 46 years of age, collapsed dead from shock. In honor of her late husband, Schwartz's widow sold the plans to a German inventor and aviation enthusiast, a man whose name would influence a famous rock and roll band 82 years later, Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin. Von Zeppelin was one of the few pioneers who believed the airship had a future in the military. Having retired from the army in 1890, Zeppelin devoted his life to airship design. Without going too deep into the intricacies, Zeppelin improved the foundations laid out by Renard and Schwartz. Zeppelin's vision of the airship consisted of a large aluminum frame, covered in a fabric envelope with individual compartments for the 17 gas bags which kept it aloft. The gas bags were free to expand and contract, thus eliminating the need for balloonettes, which were essentially giant airbags set inside the envelope. On July 2nd, 1900, the first successful flight of LZ-1, or Zeppelin Airship 1, took place at Lake Constance. The Zeppelin reached an altitude of 410 meters, and flew a distance of 6 kilometers in 17 minutes. Von Zeppelin would spend the next decade trying to improve this prototype, but skepticism among the German officials meant his project was slow to get off the ground. Zeppelin's machine could only stay aloft for a few minutes, and it flew at such low altitude that a well-placed cannon shot could burst the envelope, causing the gas-filled airship to collapse into a ball of flame. Von Zeppelin was forced back to the drawing board, and when news of the Hague conference reached his office, it looked as though Zeppelin's dreams were grounded for good. Fortunately, aviation was not under state monopoly. Although governments faced restrictions, 
private citizens were free to take the reins on aeronautical development. Working out of backyard shops and garages, amateur enthusiasts designed and experimented with new models. In 1902, Brazilian pioneer Santos Sumant flew his dirigible in a circuit around the Eiffel Tower. Three years later, Italian designers produced the first civilian airship, which traveled 300 kilometers in seven hours, a speed hitherto unmatched. As the saying goes, the genie was out of the bottle. The five-year ban adopted at the first Hague Conference expired in 1904. Despite a second conference being held in 1907, the ban was never extended. The delegates at the second conference agreed that airships could be governed by the same rules that had been adopted for land and sea forces, rules that made a clear distinction between civilian and military targets. When the delegates proposed the extension to their governments, the British were the only ones to ratify it. The rest said no, and a corner in the evolution of military air power had been turned. So what happened in the decade preceding the outbreak of war in 1914? From 1907 onwards, Europe was gripped by aviation enthusiasm. It was the dirigibles, airships and balloons, which grabbed popular headlines. In 1908, Zeppelin launched his massive LZ-4, a 135-meter behemoth that reached an altitude of 800 meters. It stayed aloft for an impressive 12 hours, and flew a distance of 350 kilometers. Zeppelin became an international icon, but his achievement was not without sacrifice. On the night of July 13th, a freak windstorm had picked up near the location where the ship was moored. LZ-4 became detached and was thrown into some nearby trees. One of the gas bags was punctured, and the ship exploded into a fireball. Some 40,000 spectators witnessed the disaster unfold. The German public was so disheartened, a fundraising campaign raised 6 million marks for Zeppelin to continue his research. So you could argue that aviation was saved by a GoFundMe campaign. Given the amateurish nature of aeronautical studies, it should come as no surprise that eventually, someone would touch on something truly revolutionary. But what no one could have predicted was the time or place. At the turn of the century, most would have said Europe. Instead, it was two bicycle mechanics across the Atlantic. On a freezing winter's day in 1903, two brothers from Dayton, Ohio, were about to change flight forever. Orville and Wilbur Wright had been dabbing in aviation since July 1899, coincidentally the same month as the Hague Conference. Over the next five years, the Wright brothers had constructed a number of gliders. Their ultimate goal was to achieve something no one thought possible, heavier than air flight. The Wright brothers had identified that flight consisted of three dimensions, pitch, roll, and yaw. Pitch being nose up and down in altitude, roll when an aircraft tilts or banks to one side, and yaw when the tail swings from side to side. 
Although it has become fashionable to paint the Wright brothers as the underdog, Wilbur and Orville were experienced engineers and mechanics. But like most enthusiasts of the time, they were amateurs when it came to aviation. Flight was a new frontier. There were no textbooks telling you how things worked. Pioneers who crossed the threshold had only their own experiences to learn from. Four years of disappointment eventually led to the construction of the Flyer 1 airplane, which took off from Kitty Hawk Airfield on the morning of December 17th. Over three test flights, the brothers achieved the first heavier-than-air flight on a fixed-wing aircraft. On average, Flyer 1 flew at an altitude of 3 meters and covered 42.5 meters in 20 seconds. It wasn't much, but it was something to build off. The Wright brothers put the United States on the aeronautical map, and the Flyer 1 has since become one of the most iconic aircraft in the world. Over in Europe, aviators looked on with a mix of jealousy and curiosity. It was not the design of Flyer 1 that they were interested in, but the technique the brothers used to achieve three-dimensional flight. That was the real secret, and the brothers had no interest in sharing it. They quickly patented their design, preventing other American pioneers, like Glenn Curtis, who was harried by the brothers' lawyers. We now know that the technique they used was called wing warping, the process of bending the entire wing. For in their epoch-making success in late 1903, the Wright brothers' decision to slap a patent on wing warping would cost America the lead in aviation and cede it back to Europe. No European designer was going to quit his own research out of respect for an American patent, especially since most airmen at the time believed in communal sharing, with the Germans supplying the magnets and ball bearings, and the French the engines. No one man or nation could claim ownership of the skies, and the patent was condemned as selfishly hindering. From 1904 onward, the fixed-wing airplane slowly emerged as the airship's main competitor. Led by the French pioneers like the Voisson brothers, the Farman brothers, and Louis Berlioz, airplane experimentation took off at an exponential pace. In Britain, Samuel Cody and Geoffrey Daviland led the charge, while the Germans enlisted the help of Dutchman Anthony Fokker. Although Fokker, Daviland, and Farman would go on to design military aircraft, we must keep in mind that early airplane design was a private enterprise fueled by civilians through their own funds and loans. Airplanes of the period were flimsy contraptions, made of canvas and wood, held together by metal pipes and bailing wire, giving them a half-finished appearance. They resembled something out of a 19th century science fiction serial, rather than a piece of cutting-edge technology. The arrival of the airplane did, however, marked the beginning of a miniature arms race among the major powers. Dirigible construction increased through 1905 to 1910. The French were placing large orders of balloon fabric in German textile firms, which piqued German suspicion. Kaiser Wilhelm ordered von Zeppelin to ramp up production, and in just a few short years, 
Zeppelin sheds were appearing along the Russian and French frontiers. The Zeppelin's rise to prominence during the first decade of the 20th century had a profound effect on Europe. Although its military potential was suspect, the latest models, cigar-shaped and as long as ocean liners, were an unnerving presence throughout Europe. Once afloat, the Zeppelin emitted a steady drone, like the buzzing of some giant, phantasmal insect. A phenomenon known as Zeppelinitis gripped Europe. In 1907, H.G. Wells published The War in the Air, a science fiction serial in which the United States fell victim to a massive Zeppelin strike. Wells's terrifying vision of the future took a step towards reality. In 1908, von Zeppelin took his airship over the border and into Switzerland. Crossing the Alps caused an international sensation. No one considered the implications of an aircraft crossing a nation's frontier willy-nilly. Unlike land or sea, which can be defined by natural or man-made barriers, there was nothing to prohibit an aircraft from flying from one country to another. National airspace, in the modern context, did not exist yet. Zeppelin's latest flight forced the authorities to grapple with this new conundrum. Previously, the major powers believed the skies to be off-limits, a free zone if you will. All of a sudden, that romantic notion had lost some appeal. While the world focused their attention on the Zeppelin, the aircraft was making its presence felt. In 1908, the Wright brothers brought their latest flyer aircraft to Europe and performed a two-and-a-half-hour public demonstration. One year later, the first modern air show was held in Reims. Over 10,000 spectators came to watch 40 aircraft perform impossible tricks and maneuvers. Air races were a popular favorite, with contestants taking home cash prizes and the chance to sell their designs to potential investors. Soon after, flying clubs were being formed across Europe. But due to the low number of airplanes, most of these clubs were informal meetings between enthusiasts, a place to discuss theory and share their latest designs. Although men dominated aviation circuits, women were obtaining their licenses as well. The world's first licensed female pilot was French woman Raymond de la Roche, who earned her wings in 1910. She was soon followed by British, American, German, Italian, and Belgian women, many of whom made the transition from balloons to aircraft. The first female Russian pilot was Lydia Servia, who obtained her license after American woman Matilda E. Moissant broke the world altitude record in 1911. Competition among amateurs, both men and women, propelled aviation into the 20th century and the Reims Air Show marks a turning point in aeronautical development. Not only did it show how much progress had been made since Kitty Hawk, it also coincided with perhaps the single most important invention, the rotary engine. The rotary engine was the brainchild of French inventor Louis Verdet. Until the rotary, most airplanes were powered by stationary radial engines, which often overheated as the amount of required torque exceeded the most efficient models. The rotary engine helped remedy that problem. By fixing the crankshaft, 
and rotating the radially arranged cylinders about its axis, the cylinders cooled in the air, providing additional torque and a more stable flight. Flight time, speed, and altitude increased as a result. In the following year, French pioneer Louis Berlioz became the first person to fly across the English Channel. Powered by the latest rotary, it took Berlioz 36 minutes to complete the voyage, making him a celebrity and ushering in a new era of aviation. One English journalist lamented that the arrival of Berlioz signaled that Britain was no longer an island. What helped the proliferation of airplanes during this period was the near-limitless possibilities. As mentioned earlier, aircraft development was outside the hands of the military, thus freeing up civilian contractors to conduct their own research. There were a few exceptions to this. In England, for example, the Army Balloon School at Farnborough contracted civilian engineers, while competing with private firms such as Sopwith and pioneers like Noel Pemberton Billing, the founder of Supermarine. The private and public sector drove competition, each vying to outdesign the other. By 1912, airplanes came in two varieties, the pusher and tractor. In a pusher airplane, the pilot sat in front of the engine, with the propeller facing towards the tail. This gave the pilot unmatched visibility and stability. An example of a pusher aircraft was de Havilland's FE-1, which was soon upgraded to the FE-2. The second variety was the tractor aircraft, of which the most famous fighters of the First and Second World Wars were modeled. Tractor aircraft had the engine mounted in the aircraft's nose. This allowed the aircraft to be pulled through the air. Pre-war examples of tractor aircraft were the French Newport II, and Anthony Fokker's M5 in 1910. Two years before the outbreak of war, the airplane's main issue was dependability. Military observers at the Reims Air Show were impressed with the airplane's progress, but less so with the acrobatics and stunts they performed. Flips and spins were all great for sport, but they had no place in the disciplined military. This was what Ferdinand Foch was speaking about when he commented that the airplane was, quote, worthless as an instrument of war. Foch's quote is often wrenched from its proper context and used to show the antediluvian mindsets of Europe's military leaders. But if you think about it, Foch's argument makes sense given the context. Simply put, airplanes did not offer anything valuable. Airships, balloons, and other dirigibles remained the go-to choice for several reasons. A dirigible could stay in constant ground communication, while a five-man crew could observe a piece of terrain for hours at a time. Unlike a single-piloted airplane, which had only a few seconds to take in as much information as possible. As a result, dirigible crews became very familiar with their terrain, and over time, were able to spot the most minute difference. For the military, it was all about consistency, and until airplanes could prove their worth, dirigibles and airships were the way to go. It is often said that Europe scoffed at the airplane because of their reluctance to embrace change, when in truth, 
it was because dirigibles were the better option through and through. In spite of this, the major powers had begun integrating airplanes into their annual maneuvers. In April 1912, the Royal Flying Corps was formed in Britain. The French established the Direction l'Aéronautique, followed by the Corporal Aeronautico Militari in Italy. Airplane development continued to grow. In 1910, the French army became the first to incorporate airplanes into their maneuvers. Two years later, Douglas Haig was defeated by James Grierson in the 1912 staff maneuvers. Haig had underestimated the airplane's potential, and learned from his mistake. As we'll soon see, Haig would emerge as one of the fiercest supporters of air power. In 1909, there were about a dozen airplanes in the world, but by 1914, there were over a thousand. Germany would begin the war with 232, Russia 190, and France 162. Italy, Great Britain, and Austria-Hungary had between 50 and 100 airplanes. The United States had eight. In the next episode, we'll see how the opening months of the Great War played out in the air. During August and September, airplanes proved their value, spotting and observing for their armies throughout the invasion of France. At first, it was all very chivalrous. Opposing airmen took to the skies like commuters going to work, often exchanging friendly waves before returning to base. All that would change in a few short weeks, transforming the sky from a place of wonder and excitement to a place of fear and harrowing violence. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast or email me directly thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. This is a quick and easy way to help grow the show, as the more reviews we have, the higher we'll place in the standings. This will ensure I never stray too far from my laptop and keep working on new episodes. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.